Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Michael Warren is here to help us make sense of the week when President Trump may have hit a scandal point of no return. And then we're going to talk with John Yu, co-author of a soon-to-be-released book on how new technologies may be changing the moral rules of warfare. All that coming up on The Confab. We welcome to The Confab Mr. Michael Warren, White House correspondent and senior writer for The Weekly Standard. Michael, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for being here. Now, let's put some things in context. Sure. All right. If you had told me a little over a week ago that a motley assemblage of Nazis, white supremacist, Klansmen had descended on a nice college town and that when protesters had turned up as protesters should turn up any time Klansmen and Nazis are on the march, that one of the white supremacists had inflicted an ISIS-style vehicle attack and murdering one young woman. If you had told me that that would all happen and that the president of the United States would have some equivocal statement, I would have said this anti-Trump mania is out of control because no president would ever say something like that. And yet here we are. Here we are. I mean, it's not, there's, you can't put a gloss on it. You can't sort of explain it away, right? I mean, you put it, you said exactly what it is that happened, the severity of what happened in Charlottesville and the president's inability, well, first, let's say inability at first to rise to the occasion and say what ought to be said. Um, that's regrettable. Um, he he sort of seemed to try to fix a little bit of that, maybe under duress, with a follow-up statement, but his initial statement essentially was a failure. Um, and then there was the press conference. Saturday was came the statement after the uh, after the murder. Monday came the cleanup statement, and then Tuesday was the press conference that blew all of that cleanup out of the water and really transformed this moment as a presidential moment from a failure uh, to um, I think something pretty despicable, uh, which was. Uh, equivocating on the people who were there, saying there were um, bad people on both sides and fine people on both sides of the debate. Um, I, I should pa- I should maybe pause here and say um, something before we go in deeper into Trump uh, on this, uh, which is that in part of the strength I think a lot of the white nationalists get from this is the fact that those protesters who were there protesting. Um, uh, that alone, their their protesting alone of Nazis and KKK and folks don't doesn't give them any sort of um, uh, a, a more a, a assignment of moral goodness, right? Simply because they were they were protesting something that was that's morally repugnant. Um, you could tell from the video uh, these were not necessarily all these people were not all acting in. Um, in good faith, there, there's a lot of those, what, what do we call them, Antifa people, Antifa people who are out there trying to incite something. Um, that being said, uh, there were a lot of people there, maybe even the majority, it's hard to tell, who were there simply trying to protest. And one of them, Heather Heyer, uh, was by all accounts a peaceful protester who was killed by a neo-Nazi. Um, 
so the equivocation by the president by saying, um, okay, he gets a little mileage out of saying maybe there were some people bad on the, on the left side of this uh, equation, but that there were some fine people marching with the neo-Nazis, that there were some fine people marching with the, uh, alongside the KKK? I, th- I, think, I think there's also the, there's something where you know, the events affect what you can properly and accurately say about it. So, so even though it's clear that on the left there have been, um, there's been a culture of violent protest that has grown up, the Antifa yes. movement, yes. and we've seen it at, at places like you know, University of California. Oakland. And, World Trade Organization meetings, right. um, and but in this instance, we're talking about Charlottesville, and what happened in Charlottesville was the white nationalist mowed some people down with a car in a terrorist act that looks like the very kind of terrorist acts that we've been decrying going on in Europe. That is not the time when you take on the issue of Antifa and the world, their world trade organization violent protests right it's missing it's missing the uh it's missing the big story it's missing the big thing and and actually what it's doing is it's playing into uh the 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 hands i think of the white nationalists because what they've done it's not just it it is it is the uh trying to get you know video of antifa people acting badly uh left-wing protesters acting badly which you're, you're gonna get um, it's trying also to merge the issues of, or I should say, merge the issue of what do we do about statues and memorials to Confederate soldiers, to people uh, in these in, that are that that exist in places like Charlottesville, which is why, ostensibly or, or sort of for 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 the purposes of of their rally, rally this is why these white nationalists were were, were uh, getting uh, to Charlottesville and, and protesting. Um, merging that with the cause of white nationalism or the cause of neo-Nazism. And that this is exactly what the white nationalists want, because I, I do believe that there is uh, I don't I don't think I entirely or even mostly agree with the idea that we should keep up memorials to Confederate soldiers, Confederate generals. Um, I like the idea of putting uh, signs on them or putting them in memor- in, in uh, museums that sort of put the context there, um, but putting them in a place on a pedestal, you know, putting them on in a place of honor. Um, really, uh, ultimately, it just, it, it's not something I'm for, but I think it's a debate to be had. What the white nationalists, what the neo-Nazis, what all these people have done, the alt-right, the broad alt-right uh, uh, people who were in Charlottesville, is they've tried to take that legitimate debate, fraught debate, it's a, it's a difficult debate, but a legitimate debate about statues. Um, and they tried to glom onto that in order to legitimize themselves. And that's bad enough, right? It's bad enough that there are people who might think, well, hey, these people are just defending uh, statues. What's wrong with that? Actually, the, the polls show that most people uh, in America want these, don't want these statues taken down or certainly don't want them taken down by, by a mob. And I can understand that. Um, <laughs> but this is, this is, that that's bad enough that it that, that the cause of white nationalists and the alt right are uh, have been merged with this entirely separate issue. What makes it even worse is that the president of the United States is the one helping to legitimize that by saying, as he did in his Tuesday press conference, that some people were there; they weren't marching, you know, with the swastikas and the uh, and and the KKK folks. They were just there to protect a statue. It's exactly what the alt right needs to help legitimate itself and to, and to feel legitimate. Um, and 
And that was where I think it just became despicable. I don't know if the president realizes that, but it's the reality. Is it possible? Is it possible that he's just confused and speaks so incoherently that he has gotten confused the notion that there are decent people who have been part of the debate over whether to, you know, because until the Nazis and KKK showed up in Charlottesville, in large part, the debate over the statues has been one where there have been local committees and commissions, and it's been part of a, a, a normal political right. process. Civic groups that Civic come on either and side, people, you know, petitions and right. going in front of state, city councils and state legislatures. Right, right, right. Right. And so you get the sense that I don't know. You don't know what to make anymore. Is it that that Trump is trying to say that, and he's just mangled things so horribly, or is he actually looking at the protests? Which the protests in Charlottesville, there were not conservatives there together with the Klan, and yeah. The, the, uh, the, in fact, there were there were there Nazis. is there is a group in Charlottesville that uh, whose uh, mission is to make uh, is to keep the the uh, statue to Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville there. Uh, by all accounts, a uh, just a group of local people who want to preserve this thing, who were not there, and expressly said that we were not, not going to have anything to do. We with had Nazis. nothing to do with the, the with the Nazis. Um, again, as most as, as the wide majority of decent Americans, even people who think that um, that the outrage over President Trump is is over is overwrought. If you ask them deep down, I just believe this as knowing an, enough people throughout the country. That, that nobody wants to make common cause with neo-Nazis. And but and so your question but, but is about this, what is President Trump's what does President Trump really think? And we don't really know. But um it's it whatever the truth is, it, it's simply irresponsible for him to not know what this is really about. And it's it, it and you wonder, is there anybody in the White House who's telling him this? Um is there anybody in the White House who's encouraging him in, in sort of his worst impulses? Um yeah, you, you do think, though, that that he th- thinks that what won him election was sticking it to the left. That's right. And that at every turn, he's going to stick it to the left, even if that means making common cause with Nazis. I don't think that he realizes the significance of that. He is not running for president as a as a private individual or as a uh, even as the, you know, uh, yeah, as a, as a private individual, and he is now the president of the United States, and that means the president of all the people of the United States. That doesn't mean you're going to please every person in the United States, or even the majority of people all the time. Um, but you, you, this is this is this is, I think, always the fear of people who were conservatives who were against Trump, um, which was that on these big moments where. You can you can say it's it's not right. It's not under the Constitution for the president to do this, but it's it's just a fact of 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 life that the president um, occupies a position where he speaks with the moral authority of the United States, and that is, I think, and we see this with there's a, a statement out from Mitt Romney, the 2012 uh, Republican nominee, who who knows maybe he's going to try to run again in in 2020. Um, Essentially, making this point right that that the, the the president has failed to present to the country and to the world, to our children, to our mili- uh, our active military folks who are out there, um, 
a, a, a statement of moral clarity about this. And that it, 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 it is beyond the point. I mean, as a practical matter, it's beyond the point of whether it's politically uh, 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 advantageous for him to sort of kind of uh, pussyfoot around the issue. Uh, there's the, the, the sheer numbers of people in the country. I mean, it, put it this way. If he believes that he only won the election because of the type of neo-Nazis who were in uh, Charlottesville, he's just wrong. I mean, the, the numbers simply aren't there. Um, but but move beyond those sort of uh, kind of dirty political considerations. It's just it, it is not what Americans expect from their president. It's not what they what they want from their president. Um, and what the, what and, and I should say what they need from their president. And it, it, people are looking to uh, the president for that 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 statement of moral clarity. And and he's I think just simply constitutionally unable to do it. So we've seen to this point a lot of moments that seemed like the wheels were coming off this presidency. It was just a couple of weeks ago before John Kelly came in that we had you know this clown parade going on with Scaramucci and things looking like the White House was falling apart and John Kelly comes in as the new chief of staff and is the chaos going to be put at bay? You know, it looked like we might actually get a few weeks of relative calm and normality out of the White House. And instead, we now have what appears, feels like an irrevocable moment. It's, it has been, I think, a slow burn over the last seven, eight months or so. Um, I guess seven and a half months. You know, you've had Republican senators, even some Republican House members, you know, make statements. Um, you know, you, you essentially had... Uh, uh, his first major, Trump's first major legislative achievement uh, uh, squandered or, 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 or uh, killed uh, because I think in, in no small part because of, of the president's own sort of actions and the craziness going on and, and, and the feeling that, um, that, that the Republicans didn't owe him anything. Um, you've had these several events that have hurt his approval numbers um, They've uh, made people sort of feel like what's what's going to happen next. Uh, but then I think you're right that this moment sort of feel you're now seeing uh, Republican senators just openly oppose uh, the president. I think that's a, I keep going back to Republican senators because this they are the in the best position to put pressure on the president more than certainly Senate Democrats or anybody in the House or uh, really anybody else in terms of they have so much power individually that they so to see a number of them coming out and it's not just your people like Jeff Flake and John McCain um, Tim Scott uh, the only black Republican senator from the from the deep south since reconstruction coming out hard and saying this is essentially this is a moral failure of the president to do this um, that that's a huge difference um, that's a huge change you're there, there's always been thought well maybe will a Republican challenge the president in the primary I think that this week is is the week that 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 percentage of that happening goes above fifty percent. Um, that, that there was always talk about that, but this is the moment that I think Republicans are all going. This this something cannot can't cannot stand here. Um, that's just a huge problem practically for the president. How is he going to get anything through? And then you you add all of that to the fact I wrote about this in White House Watch Friday morning. 
that you're now seeing the president go after incumbent uh, members of his own party. Uh, Jeff Flake is the first one who he's uh, the president tweeted out something in support of uh, kind of a nutty woman who's running in the Republican primary against Jeff Flake. And uh, you're hearing I'm hearing from people who are sort of in Trump political world that they're looking for more credible challengers to Jeff Flake in Arizona because Jeff Flake doesn't like the president and said so publicly, giving less and less reason for Republicans to go along with with Trump. There's there's sort of the public pressure. There's the internal uh, battles that are being fought, um, cutting against Mitch McConnell and that sort of thing uh, on, on these political issues. Um, and I think you may be seeing the president himself just simply putting distance between himself and the party to maybe run as a either a de jure or a de facto independent in 2020. Um, but I, I don't know, a man without a party, um, it could be very lonely indeed. And I think this is, you're absolutely right, this is a moment. But what we do see is there's no commitment to the party that would uh, temper his behavior Nothing to say, wow, I better think twice about this because I'm damaging the party, that's, uh, stigmatizing the party. And that's one place where we see that his go-it-alone, worry about Trump and, and nothing about his allies is coming to, to bear some bitter fruit. This is, uh, this is the last, last point I'll make on this, which is there are so many things in our constitution, in our political culture that um, constrain a precedent, right? Um, the the Senate, as I mentioned, is a is a place sort of constitutionally where the Senate, where the president can be uh, con- constrained. Um, the party system, as you mentioned, is another place where a president can be constrained. He's not free to do whatever he wants um, uh, on that front as well. Um, there are all these pl- sort of places and 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 and, and uh, things within our system. That put constraints on the president. And the thing that I worry about, I think a lot of people are worried about, is there's one place where there really are no constraints, which is what can the president say in public with the bully pulpit in moments like these, in moments like Charlottesville, um, when it's really just him. And um, for the for, for for most of our country's history, we've had uh, we've had men in the presidency who have viewed the presidency as something a little bigger than themselves, and that. When they reach those moments, they may not have always said what we wanted them to say. They may not have always gotten it right, um, but they certainly approached it with the the sense that they were speaking. Um, they 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 were constrained. They were constrained by their own sense of what the office meant. The president's not constrained by that, um, and I think we are now seeing what that looks like. I don't. I can't imagine who really likes what they see. What's your sense in the White House? Do people realize the magnitude, the severity of what's happened? There was a, a video and a photo of John Kelly at that Tuesday press conference at Trump Tower. That I think encapsulates where the White House staff is. As Trump was going on about um, about whatever he the, was the saying. The fine people. The fine people and the rest. Uh, John Kelly, a Marine general, a hero, the, the, the father, uh, the son of... Uh, a veteran, the father of veterans, including one who was killed in Afghanistan, um, an honorable man in in every sense of the word, arms crossed, staring down at his shoes. I think knowing what he was hearing was was that was not well. That again, that photo encapsulates I think where the White House staff not is only right where now. the White House staff is. I I think it it captures 
the pose of the nation at this point. Yes. You know, we've got our arms crossed and we're looking at our shoes wondering what the hell next. Exactly. Um, not a good, not a good uh, uh, moment, not a good feeling. I will also say this, though. There's been a lot of talk about why aren't these people resigning? Why, why aren't we seeing mass resignations in the White House? And, um, you know, in, in some cases, people like John Kelly, people like H.R. McMaster, the, I think probably you know, military men, feel a sense of duty. You know, they're in positions that, where, where they need to, they, they feel like it's their duty no matter what to do something about it. I'm sure there's a point uh, that, they, they, that they couldn't stay there any longer. But um, we, we kind of tend not to appreciate, it's not really an excuse for it, but we kind of tend not to appreciate how being so close to it and actually being sort of taken, I mean, as you said this, it seems like every week we go through something like this, um, that can kind of numb you to this sort of thing. And, and maybe even the West Wing can be... Um, you could be kind of cloistered in it, and I wonder if um, if people are just either numb or don't quite realize um, what this really means. It's hard to see it when you're that close. It's, it's it's easier to see it when you're a little far away. Michael Warren, White House correspondent and senior writer for the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thanks, Eric. now on the confab, we're joined via Skype by John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a former deputy assistant attorney general in the George W. Bush administration, and co-author, together with Jeremy Rabkin, of the soon-to-be-released book, Striking Power, How Cyber, Robots, and Space Weapons Change the Rules of War. Professor Yu, welcome to the confab. Hey, thanks, Eric. It's great to be with you. So how have technological changes in the past changed the rules of war? It's an old story, even though now we're talking about it in a new context. You know, as we see technology race ahead in the past, uh, industrial revolutions and so on, those advances always come to war, too. And the way we fight wars always struggles to catch up. And there's always an effort by uh, the status quo to stop military technology. So just take, for example, the crossbow in the Middle Ages. Uh, the church tried to ban the crossbow because it was seen as uh, you know, uh, dishonorable to shoot through the armor of a knight. But the one that most people will be familiar with is the coming of the Industrial Revolution uh, and World War I. So World War I saw the emergence of uh, airplanes and bombing from the air and submarines, you know, torpedoing ships from under the sea, uh, mass production of artillery and weapons, uh, very cheap levels, and huge draft armies. And there was a real difficulty in World War I trying to figure out how to deal with all these technologies. You might remember in World War I, the Allies demanded that German submarines had to surface first before they could sink a ship, because that was like the way ships used to fight on the surface. Uh, and that didn't work. But you could see how technology raced ahead, and the rules of war always were slow and struggling struggling to catch up. The rules of war and even just the thinking about war. I mean, during World War I, you had the machine gun making it such that, uh, you know, rushing the trenches was futile. But then a very difficult time for the British high command to realize that you didn't just send more men 
when the first round of men didn't prove enough to uh, to overwhelm the machine guns. That's quite right, Eric. You had, if you go back and look at World War One, you had officers who had really their training was studying the Napoleonic War and cavalry battles and charges and the uh, the romance of the offensive. In fact, we actually also saw it in the Civil War. You think of Pickett's Charge, but what technology did by the time of the Civil War and World War One was give the advantage to the defense because, as you say, the machine gun, uh, mass-produced, cheap, handheld weapons with great accuracy, uh, which made those kinds of strategies uh, obsolete. Uh, but you're right, mentally, the British High Command, the French, or the Confederacy and the Union generals through the, many of the years of the Civil War could not change their mental way of thinking to come to grips with the new technology. And during a war, there's often uh, an inability to sort of think through the consequences of the new technologies that are being used. I think about World War II and strategic bombing, which really targeted in large part civilian populations. And it was seen as necessary, given there wasn't a more accurate way of bombing production. Um, but then after the war, Bomber Harris was kind of persona non grata in Britain for his role in strategic bombing, which had been promoted all through the war. Yes, that's quite right. The strategic bombing by the U.S. and Great Britain of Germany at the time of the war did not raise serious controversy because those were the, the as you said, the inaccuracy of the weapons at that time meant that you had to bomb far more than we would find acceptable today. Or to take uh, the most famous example, the decision to use nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was partially done for military benefit. But if you go back and look at what Truman said at the time was also done as a political signal to Japan about what would happen if they did not uh, surrender. And there you have, you know, accuracy was not really questioned because you, we used a weapon that just killed indiscriminately. Your book deals in large part with the new emerging weapons of war, robots, cyber, unmanned aerial vehicles. It, it seems that the book struggles with a question. And uh, I'll give you two quotes from your book, and you can help me sort out which way it goes. One quote is, If new technology reduces the costs of war while improving its effectiveness, nations may turn to force more often to promote desirable ends. And then in a second quote, while the United States, among others, is rapidly developing new means of fighting, these innovations may limit war. So which do you think it is? Do the new technologies make it easier to go and, and fight wars, or does it lead to limits on war? You know, Eric, the temptation when you co-write a book is you can always blame one of the two senses <laughs> on the, the co-author. <laughs> but I, that's actually not, not the case here. So... Actually, it's interesting. We think that in, uh, look, North Korea, you know, which we're all thinking about and talking about right now, is a great example. Um, if you are stuck, our view is if you're stuck between uh, using no force and then using extreme amounts of force, you know, armed attack, you know, invasion, you know, with conventional weapons, then you're you have this terrible dilemma, which we're facing in North Korea right now that leaves you a choice about doing nothing and letting a nation acquire nuclear weapons or a, or as we saw in Rwanda, a terrible humanitarian catastrophe, you know, almost 1 million people killed when you do nothing or having to insert ground troops and all of the casualties that, that might incur. 
So our argument, which are one of the other things we're trying to show in this book, is that uh, these new kinds of weapons, cyber, precision, drone, guided missiles with drones, and even space-based uh, weapons, allow nations to use force in smaller portions, you know, to use uh, not just the uh, either-or of doing nothing or armed invasion, to try to coerce nations to stop their harmful conduct so that people in Washington today, when we think about North Korea, have more options on the table about trying to stop. And maybe in the end, we can't stop a North Korea from getting nuclear weapons, but we can try to harass it, discourage them, and maybe hopefully stop them. And, and maybe the next test won't be North Korea because I think our leaders really felt they couldn't do anything between those two kinds of choices. But maybe we can think about the people who follow after North Korea's example, like Iran. So how much of the rules of war are about how you treat combatants, and how much is it about what happens to non-combatants? It's a good question, because that's the central mission of the laws of war, is to preserve as much as possible the life of innocent civilians. And as you mentioned, with the example of Bomber Harris in World War II, we've also always accepted this idea of collateral damage, the idea that uh, civilians aren't your target, but sometimes they're harmed because they're too close to a military target or they're operating infrastructure that's being used by the uh, military. The thing we think uh, new technologies offer is the ability to be even more precise in how we target an enemy. But we also argue that sometimes that should allow us to target civilian infrastructure and civilian networks as long as we don't kill civilians. That's the thing that new technology really allows us to do that it didn't before. So, uh, for example, suppose Iran continues on, I think, its quest to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, what if the United States could use cyber uh, attacks to shut down the Iranian banking system or to shut down the electrical grid where these research facilities are located without killing anybody but just using them to paralyze a civilian power generation or financial networks. Under current laws of war understandings, those would probably be illegal because those are aimed at civilian infrastructure. But those would be a very powerful tool that could allow us potentially to head off the Iranians or at least impose so many costs that they might, the mullahs in Tehran might change their mind. Does it matter at, at all to how the U.S. behaves that many of its adversaries, I think of uh, ISIS as a lead example, aggressively violate any concept of the rule of war? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, the West often fights with one hand tied behind its back, and we choose to. Uh, the problem we're having is how do we fight these nations that refuse nations and groups that refuse to obey any of the laws of war? You'll often hear it said that the United States, for example, must follow the Geneva Conventions when we're fighting uh, ISIS or Al Qaeda. And as you know, when I was in the Bush administration, I uh, argued that we should not. Uh, one thing you realize is that every war the United States has fought since World War II, our opponents have always violated the Geneva Conventions and never follow them because they find that a way to effectively uh, attack us, to, to struggle with us, the fancy words, asymmetrically, you know, to, to fight against us in ways that we don't fight against them. Uh, I think you're seeing that in these new technologies we're talking about, too. Think about cyber. I think right now uh, China, Russia, North Korea are 
conducting a low-level cyber war against the United States, stealing huge databases of all of government personnel, breaking into companies, releasing information public. Whatever you make of Russia's attempt to influence the uh, elections, there's no doubt that the Russians are conducting a, way, a campaign of cyber intrusion against our networks, whether they're successful or not. I think the United States, that we are relatively passive under the Obama administration before, when all of that was happening because we are worried about whatever new rules we want to apply to cyber war. But our, as you said, our opponents, they don't care. They're not following any rules uh, in their uh, campaign to harass and degrade you know, our abilities to fight. So what technologies do you think are most likely to change warfare in the coming decades? Well, in, in writing this book, we identified uh, three advances. Uh, one is uh, not just drones, but autonomous robots. So drones are just the early version of what we can see coming down the road. So not just uh, you know, airplanes that are remotely controlled from Nevada by a pilot, but what about fully autonomous airplanes, ships, tanks, where there is no one at risk operating the vehicle, and you give it a set instructions set of instructions about what kind of targets to attack or not. Those, I think, will be very influential in the laws. Well, you'll be able to uh, send ships and weapons to attack targets that you never could before, and they're going to be much more durable, and less of our own, tr our own troops will be at risk. Uh, the second, of course, is cyber, the ability to attack, paralyze the other side's communications or finances or transportation without, having, without anyone dying. You know, without potentially actually physically destroying anything. And then the third one, which, uh, you know, if you, if you read in the papers about Elon Musk and SpaceX or Jeff Bezos wanting to run a space tourism agency, uh, the, what that really reflects is how cheap it has become to send uh, satellites up into space. And a lot of strategists talk about space as being the new frontier for competition between countries and having protecting your own satellites it will be critical to being able to use all these other weapons and so we think space satellites and space weapons are going to be the third type of new technology that we have to start thinking about now in terms of how we're going to uh, limit or use them in war actually in space though i have to say the united states is way ahead but the chinese are catching up fast as in a lot of other areas and you know, I think it's something we just tend not to think about, even though yeah, the space space networks are behind all the GPS systems. Think about how bad it would be if uh, an opponent paralyzed our GPS systems. Never be able to find it to a, find my way to a restaurant again. It so, might be good for your health. It might be. <laughs> John Yu, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, AEI, visiting scholar and author with Jeremy Rabkin of the soon-to-be-released book, Striking Powers, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. Thanks for joining us on The Confab. Thanks a lot, Eric. That's it for The Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to The Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription, or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.